0: Welcome to the second season of Knowledge at Wharton and IIX's podcast series, From Backstreet to Wall Street. Our our theme this season is Women, Peace and Parity, where we speak with innovators and entrepreneurs who are building peace in a new way by addressing the root causes of inequality and in the process, making women's empowerment a priority. In this episode, we plan to look at the growth of sustainable investing and how women are driving it forward. Demand for sustainable and impact investments has grown exponentially over the past decade. Morgan Stanley reports in 2017 that 75% of individual investors were interested in an ESG approach. And among these investors, 84% of women and 86% of millennials are leading this demand. The Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment and Global Sustainable Investing Alliance reported Sustainable investing assets reached nearly $12 trillion in 2018 in the U.S., or $1 in $4 under professional management, and $30 trillion globally. Here to speak with us about harnessing the power of finance to address sustainability challenges and how women are blazing a trail is our guest Audrey Choi, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer and Chief Marketing Officer at Morgan Stanley. She also serves as the CEO of Morgan Stanley's Institute for Sustainable Investing, which seeks to scale solutions to address global challenges through private capital. And also joining us in this conversation, as always, is Doreen Shanas, uh, founder and CEO of IIX, who also used to work for Morgan Stanley in the past. Uh, Doreen and Audrey, welcome, and thank you so much for joining the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Mukul. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Mukul.
0: And before we uh, turn to Audrey with the first question, Doreen, would you uh, like to set a, set the stage a little bit about the state of sustainable finance and how women are leading the way?
1: Sure. Um, so thank you. Thank you for kind of, uh, you know, starting off the conversation. And, you know, it's a very important one. Um, when you're talking about sort of the global perspective of, uh, you know, women, peace and parity, which obviously is the, is the theme, you know, of our conversations because when you look at obviously the the global sustainable investment which is now being pegged at uh you know over 30 trillion it's a, it's a big number and i think um it's important for us to sort of really see what's kind of under the hood in terms of um the fact that it's now being said it's no longer a fad everyone wants to do this but is that number kind of telling us you know what's actually happening and i think if you look at some of the key trends, you know, some of them are very um, encouraging. I mean, first of all, you see women and millennials are really seen now as a as a crucial market driver. You know, women across the world are set to inherit, you know, it is said close to 29 trillion dollars of intergenerational wealth over the next 40 years. You know, while the first millennials are turning 40, there seem there's going to be in prime age of spending, you know, investing, etc. Um However, it's interesting to see that um, while we're talking about women and sustainability, women actually invest 40% less than men, and they're likely to defer investment decisions more to their spouses if they're married, and that's even more so, shockingly, for the millennial women, which you would think that they were more empowered than our generation. Um, but interestingly we do find there are more innovative ways out there to tap the market and you know trying to remove um, the barriers but once again um, the interesting thing is while you know there are 70 trillion dollars of assets out there you see that you know less than you know the two percent it's actually the exact number is 1.3 percent is actually managed by women and uh, for women of color even less so it's it's really these are astounding numbers so while we're seeing that um, you know women are not a participant in, very much in the financial markets, when we're getting the opportunity, um, we're not doing it either. So what does that mean? So another trend that we're seeing is um, obviously there's um, we're hearing the big names and we're thrilled Audrey are with us today from Morgan Stanley, um, but we do hear you know the bulge bracket firms, the big you know um, in PE funds, they're all sort of now coming into the space, but the difficult question to ask is really what kind of impact is actually happening, happening on the ground? I mean, what are the differences between the traditional investment products and actually what's really sustainable and what's really creating kind of deep impact? Um, and how do we ensure that we're not having in, you know this impact wash, which is something that's also you know, coming up a lot? And then finally, I mean, there's a general lack of... In some of, you know, you, you hear this sort of the, the innovative financial products in the space. So um, it looks like about $133 billion was deployed in innovative or blended finance in forms of bonds, notes, et cetera, in 2018. Um, yet it frequently comes up in conversations and debates and conferences that there's a lack of um, investable opportunities. So if that's the case... Um, I think the question to ask is why is not more happening um, in terms of encouraging in creating these products and and finding ways to take on risk, you know, that's associated with having these products come in the market. So these are some of the, the trends that's coming up, some of the conversations, some of the debates. Um, so I think we'll have a very interesting uh, discussion today to talk all around it. So Mukul, back to you.
0: Sure, sure, Dhirin. Thanks very much. That that you, you brought up quite a few really interesting points that I think it would be great to dive into more deeply as we go along. But uh, Audrey, to turn to you for for, for uh, you know for the first question, uh, uh, could we start perhaps by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got started on this? journey of harnessing finance to create positive social change?
2: Sure, um, and, and thank you again, Mukland It's really, really wonderful to be with you today. Um, you know, I've had uh, the real privilege of having a, a very um, interesting career in terms of se- shifting between sectors um, so that I've spanned the public, nonprofit, and private sectors over the course of my career. Um, my first career was as a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. And there I really had the opportunity to sit across the table from CEOs talking about their corporate strategies and their growth strategies. Um, My second career was then actually in public service. I went into the federal government, had the opportunity to work uh, in the White House and at um, executive branch agencies, um, where we focused um, a lot on public-private partnerships. This was, you know, in the 1990s, um, up through 2000. And, you know, we were really focusing on how could we align public policy goals like addressing the digital divide or creating economic opportunity for low-income communities with the private sector so that there could really be both public sector and private sector funds going towards these causes. Um, and then I also had the opportunity um, in a variety of different capacities to work for and with nonprofits and really be able to see what does it mean to be on the ground in communities working sort of block by block initiative by initiative to try to create economic empowerment or protect the environment and what was the role of grassroots and philanthropy and When I sort of looked at all of these experiences together, you know I really came to the conclusion that um, while you desperately need enlightened public policy and inspired and sort of brave philanthropy to help um, create some of the goalposts and the parameters and to seed some catalytic investments, that actually, if you could, in addition, harness the private sector, harness the the capital at the disposal of the private sector, harness the speed of decision-making and the ability to achieve scale, that the private sector could actually be one of the most powerful sources of um, positive change on the planet, if it chooses to be. And so that, for me, really made me come to the cl- conclusion that I really wanted to um, focus on how could, how could we harness the power of the private sector uh, to achieve positive social change. Uh, as well as environmental protection and creating economic opportunity. And I really came to the conclusion that, you know, the way that you can harness the most scale and speed and ultimately impact is if you can align private sector um, growth and other motivations with achieving positive goals, um, impact goals. And um, so that, for me, really led to thinking about where, where are there really interesting points of great um, leverage to be able to, to drive change. And, you know, ultimately, finance is something that really touches every sector. And if you could harness the power of the capital markets – to work with innovators, entrepreneurs, large corporations, public um, entities, that you could really start helping align these impact goals around economic opportunity, protecting the environment, with the power and the speed of, um, of corporations and capital markets. So that's really what kind of led me to, to Morgan Stanley and to our founding, the Global Sustainable Finance Group, um, actually 11 years ago. Uh,
0: thank you. Yes? Uh, th- thank you, thank you audrey that that was really interesting now uh, during turning to you the uh, uh from, from your perspective at IIX i'm sure you have seen uh, not just morgan stanley but others as well that, that have tried to harness the power of the private sector as audrey was just saying to drive scale and impact and speed uh, so what has been some of uh, what are some of the things that you have seen in terms of how the private sector can play a role in uh, directing investment to where it can make a real impact on sustainable development.
1: Right. And, I, you know, I think um, before I jump into that, I think, um, you know, it's really, um, and it's really wonderful what Audrey has been able to do at Morgan Stanley and kind of start this whole, you know, the sustainable practice and initiative because... Um, it re- You really do need for a large amount of of capital to be moved. you do need these big banks to be sort of coming in and um, and having more and more of a role. I think what we do see now you know and again, if you kind of think about sort of the spectrum you know starting from socially responsible investment you know which is obviously sort of that negative screening you 're not going to invest in guns or alcohol et cetera to e s g um, the environment, social, and governance, to actually impact investing. Um, there's a degree of impact. So I think if you actually, we are, of course, very much reside on the extreme right, which is the, the you know, if you think of the spectrum um, on the impact investing, with deep impact. And what we have seen is the fact that um, the, on the individual level, you know, people are willing to um, come in uh, for investments of smaller amounts, But what really we see is that these people, after one or two investments, they actually stop investing because they want to see that these investments are realized. But if you're doing equity investment, it takes a while for these to realize. Now, as investors want to have more liquidity and they want to invest larger amounts we do see that you need products for them to do that. And, you know, one of the things that we did do a couple of years ago, and now we are again doing it, is this women's livelihood bond. And it was very, very interesting, I think, when we sort of embarked on it, which is really working on the ground level with um, enterprises who are creating livelihood for women, pulling them together and creating these bonds, um, which was, you know, which gave a coupon um, of close to 6%, so it was quite amazing. We wrapped all these, you know, risk mitigators, et cetera, what we realized was that it really does take a village to pull something like this together. So I think this was one of the most wonderful things that came out, not only just the bond, but the fact that you do need an ecosystem to come together if you're going to create kind of sustainable and lasting impact. So there were bankers, there were lawyers, um, accountants, you know, rating agencies, et cetera, who all came in and just really rallied around it in terms of using their skill sets to create um, sustainable uh, financial products. And that was really quite remarkable. So I think um, we do see the market is moving and we do see that if you want to create deeper impact, um, it will take time, but you will see that there's probably more sustainability around it. Um, and I do feel more and more people you know, will be... A part of that, so I think um, you know that is very encouraging. You know what we're seeing in the market.
0: Great, uh, th- thanks, Doreen. Coming back to, uh, to to Audrey, I mean, one of uh, as as we said in the beginning, there's a huge amount of money going into uh, sustainable investing. Uh, you know, nearly twelve trillion dollars in 2018. Now, when you think about Morgan Stanley's approach uh, through the Institute for Sustainable Investing. Uh, how have you tried to differentiate your approach from some of the things that others may be doing uh, to, to make an impact? And uh, so that's one question I had for you. But I also want to ask about an expression that Doreen used earlier, which was impact washing. Uh, and is, is, can, you, can you help explain that as well a little bit and see, you know, are there some risks involved as more and more money goes into the space?
2: Sure. Um well look I think you, you raise you know, you both raised a really important point. Um you know, I think that there's a, a number of things that are going on which I believe are are actually quite positive trends. Um, You know, one is, as you said, I think that one of the things that Morgan Stanley has really focused on um, over the last 10 years is how do we bring sustainability issues, environmental issues, social issues, good governance issues, how do we really bring those into the mainstream markets? Right, because I think that what's been very um, important to us and really fundamental to our approach when we started this, you know, more than 10 years ago, was saying that um, it's, it's wonderful that we have um, in the world sort of focused either philanthropic, catalytic capital, or blended capital, and, you know, specialized vehicles that are finding ways to harness sort of capital market-type structures for, to achieve high-impact, Um, and that that is absolutely critical, and those are some of the trailblazers that we really look to. Um, but that in addition, what was important was, um, how do we, you know, not just bring some private sector capital into the deep impact areas, but how do we bring impact into the mainstream capital markets? Um, and so that's one of the reasons why at Morgan Stanley, what we focused on when we first started out on this is saying, how can we find ways to really start to include um, the the much larger pool of capital who you know who may be interested in impact but who aren't um, focused on or you know or for whom it's not appropriate to think about concessionary returns or blended finance or some of these other more specialized impact vehicles um, and you know we really say look the way that we believe we can leverage the maximum amount of capital towards positive, you know, developments and positive impact is by figuring out how to really integrate into core financial products. And so what we did is actually we've been focusing on where are the areas where you can achieve um, the kinds of returns and risk profiles that are consistent with of traditional financial expectations and markets um, and also be driving sustainability. Um, What's, you know, what's really interesting is I think that, you know, that actually goes against what many people's sort of myth or stereotype is about sustainable investing. For most people, when you talk about environment or social justice and, and you say investment in the same sentence... They automatically say, oh, you're talking about a concessionary return, you're talking about a do-good investment, and, yeah, I can't sacrifice return because you know I need to pay bills or I'm an institution that needs to pay pensions regularly to pensioners, so we can't think about that. One of the things that we've spent a lot of time focusing on and doing research and analysis around over the last um, you know, 10 years has been, is that true? And one of, I think, the really fascinating things that we've found um, and that has helped drive more and more money into ESG investing or sustainable investing um, is that we've found that sustainable investing products, and we we just just recently, last month, um, actually a couple weeks ago, um, released a study of 11,000 different investment strategies um, comparing sustainable investments to traditional ones, and we found that basically, the sustainable investments had very, um, essentially, had the same return profile with significantly less volatility. Um, so, first of all, I think that's you know one important thing to say is that, and I think it's part of the reason why more and more assets have been coming into sustainable investing, is that investors have started to realize that caring about the environment, thinking about social justice, gender equity, other, you know, um, other issues around social impact can actually help your investment strategy. They can actually help you be aware of risks and opportunities earlier and make really sound investments. Now, So I think that's been a big part of driving more and more capital into the space where, these investors are saying, you know what, we want to be um, focused on investing in companies and investment strategies that really do think deeply and um, with rigor around environmental and social concerns. Now, having said that, you know, um, there is, of course, a a real spectrum where some capital may be having um, sort of more deeper, more intentional impact Um, And, you know, we think that's completely appropriate. And as as Doreen was mentioning, you know, there is a real spectrum of opportunities. So there is, on the one hand, um, investors and investment strategies really focused on we want to make sure that we're not supporting or not investing in various issues or trends or industries that we don't believe in and we don't want our capital to support. Um, And, you know, I I think that that is actually very important because it does, over time, make make some differences to the cost of capital available to different industries, depending on their environmental and social impact. Other investors say we really want to focus on the companies that have real high quality around environment and social governance and management issues. And then there's still other investors who say we believe certain industries, whether it's renewable energy or affordable quality health care or um, provision of clean quality water that those are, or affordable housing, that those are industries that if we can make those industries grow, we can drive social impact and growth. And then, you know, moving even further on the sort of intentionality spectrum, there's investments that are very clearly focused on saying, how do we very intentionally drive high-impact strategies? So I think it's, you know, it's not so much about um, uh, saying that one is better than the other. I'm very much a, you know, all of the above and kind of person where I think that we absolutely want to drive as much as we can towards high impact, deep impact, incredibly rigorous impact. And we also want as much of the money saying, if there's an opportunity to tilt towards better impact or more impact or more environmental environmentalism than less, why wouldn't you want to tilt the entire tanker? And get that huge wake going in the direction, as well as you know the the um, the, the you know the, uh, the sharp point of the spear on you know driving very intentional, mindful impact.
0: No, I think you you, you make very uh, uh, great great points, uh, Audrey. So so thank you for that. Now, Doreen, to 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 uh, ask you the same question that I had brought up earlier with Audrey uh as as this sort of flood of capital moves into you know uh investing uh, in sus- sustainable development do you feel that uh, you know the challenge that there is a challenge of what you referred to as impact washing and what, what 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 is that what does that mean and what does that signify yeah
1: so i think right so i think audrey's absolutely right i mean listen we need to be thinking about uh, in large amounts of capital we need to be thinking about how to start moving you know, any way possible, you know, um, as much capital as we can and with, you know, various spectrums of it. But I think, you know, one of the few of the things I think to keep in mind is um, as that's happening, there's also fear that um, there may be sometimes, and which is starting to happen now, there may be packaging issues. So, for example, we do see that, um, and it was very interesting, you know, um, it was, I guess, early on this year, um, I was doing a keynote you know, at the Economist event in New York and uh, Bill McGlashan, who was uh, with the Rice Fund, was there and I've been always very vocal about it um, in terms of what Rice Fund would say they were doing and actually the impact that they were creating. And what's happening is, um, you know, he was up there talking about it. Of course, subsequently, you know, he caught up, got caught up on this uh, college scandal. So it was interesting. Um, but I think what was interesting was the fact that you know, folks like the Rights Fund and the KKR, et cetera, what they're doing is, you know, when they're creating these BE funds and they're saying they're going to do impact investing, and they're actually saying that they're doing impact investing, um, they're going out there and they're doing a lot of emerging market investment. So the reality is emerging market investment has been going on for years. I mean, years, right? I mean, I was trading Brady Bonds, you know, 25 years ago. I mean, that was... Emerging market investment as well. I mean, it's just, you know, it's been going on for years. So you cannot call emerging market investment actually impact investing. I mean, Audrey is right. It's the intentionality. I mean, it's really about thinking about that 99% of the world population who are left out, you know, from the financial markets. And it is really one of the greatest injustices of the modern era also, of the continued exclusion, you know, of women and underserved communities from these financial markets. I mean, how are we addressing all this, and why do we exclude that from this conversation? I mean, investing in a hospital in Bangladesh doesn't make it an impact investing. Is that hospital actually, you know, looking at the at the rural poor and really getting them the the healthcare that they don't need? I don't, you know, this is not what Rice Fund is doing. So I think, you know. There is no issue about the fact that there is a spectrum, but let's sort of really say how it is and really sort of say, you know, this is what we're doing and we really are not going to the last mile, and which is okay, right? Someone else will do that. So I think we just need to sort of um, define what we're doing more clearly. We have to be able to um, very clearly state the measurements. I mean, once again, a lot of the investments that are happening, it's what the companies are saying they're doing, um, you know we need to be able to measure, and this is you know I was part of the impact um, in the IRIS, the Impact Reporting Investment Standard. I was one of the ones, people who created it for for Rockefeller like 12 years ago, and since then you know we have a group of us have been very dedicated in terms of really this impact measurement, making sure the voice of the people of the underserved communities is part of this impact measurement and i think that is very important to be able to kind of say if you're actually creating impact if that's your intention well then let's make sure the voice of the people the voice of the environment is actually there and we see the impact um, that's happening um, on the ground and i think if that is a part of the equation i think a lot of these um I guess the gray area, you know, would go away. But having said that, again, on a positive note, it is moving. The fact that people are talking about it and having debates, which really means people care, you know, and across the spectrum. So uh, it's all moving in the right direction. We just have to make sure that we're not leaving out the, you know, 99% of the population, you know, where um, they never had a voice in the financial markets and they still don't. Um, and we really need to do something you know to change that
0: uh thanks Doreen. I I, I think you you again raised some very important uh, uh points on, about uh defining the terms correctly and also you know establishing metrics that that are meaningful uh Artie, do you do you have a comment on what Doreen just pointed out and the risks that she identified
2: yeah you know i think um it's um you know there are uh I, I really agree with Doreen that there is an incredible need for, um, for the whole community that focuses on sustainable investing and impact investing to be really rigorous with ourselves. Right? I think that we need to be very rigorous on both sides, both on um, understanding and being clear about sort of the financial expectations and returns of different strategies, as well as on the impact side right because and and I say this very frequently when I'm talking to you know to people about who are sort of considering sustainable investing or considering mm-hmm. impact investing um is you know that just because you're sort of adding the word impact or sustainability into the sentence you know is not some sort of magic Dumbo's feather that could should make you suspend you know disbelief and suspend all the sort of the regular. Um, things that you would do to kick the tires on, you know, on any investment or grant or you know other kind of strategic initiative that you would be taking on. Um, and so I think that, and and you have to be incredibly clear as to you know wh- why you're investing and what kind of capital you're investing, right? So if you're a, you know, if you are a pension fund and you know you have fiduciary requirements and you have payments that you need to make every month so that pensioners all across the country, you know, get their payments, you have a very strong fiduciary duty to, to look at the financial returns and the financial risks and, and opportunities and to be really rigorous about that. Again, there I think what's been great and has been a, a great alignment is that, you know, studies are showing that sustainable investing um, products have, you know, similar returns with lower risk so those are things that fiduciaries can, you know, should be able to invest in, thinking really first and foremost about their financial concerns um, and then also wanting to achieve impact. But on the other hand, exactly as Doreen has said, I couldn't agree more, that from an impact side, if someone is coming into an investment, whether it's an individual or an institution, because they want this as an impact investment to drive impact, then they need to be equally rigorous about what is that impact um, and you know, very much agree. You know, just because something says that it's a a healthcare fund or a housing fund or an education fund or you know, or bottom of the pyramid fund, that doesn't mean that they're all going to have equal impact. And um, I think, as always in life, people often have to decide between breadth and depth, between sort of local or global, and how they want that impact to be achieved. Um, but there has to be, I think, equally rigorous due diligence. Um, you know, by investors as to what's the impact that they're trying to drive, what's the strategy will actually align with that. And there's a huge, um, you know, responsibility that should be placed on any asset manager or, you know, investment manager um, to be very clear um, with, you know, with any investors about what it is that they're achieving and how they're um, going to achieve the impact that they're driving for. So I think that, you know, this, this is a really critical moment for the industry where we and the the whole investing community, we have to really hold ourselves to very high standards around the clarity, the disclosure, and the rigor around both what is the financial proposition that any investment is offering and what is the impact proposition that investment is offering and helping align the right investors to the right tools that are right for them. Um, And then lastly, I would just say that, that I think um you know there there is an important distinction and and it's you know the the field is still evolving, but we do have to think um you know we have, i think we have to focus on we do have to focus on vocabulary that e s g investing sustainable investing impact investing are not all the same things, and they they are often used somewhat interchangeably in conversations um and I think that you know that's that's part of the the rigor that we need so that we can really help investors um, align better to the investment strategies that are really going to achieve what they need and want, both on the financial return side and the impact side.
0: Great. Uh, Andre, before we go back to Doreen, I just had a quick follow-up on what you just said, which is, uh, it was, I think in 10 years ago in 2009 that Morgan Stanley created the Global Sustainable Finance Group. Mm -hmm. So, uh, If you were to look at your own approach on how you think about these issues, especially in terms of measuring the impact of investments, uh, how have you been thinking about it and how has your thinking evolved?
2: Yeah, I think um, that we have really been... uh, I think we have done what we think um, is a pretty important um, sort of orientation for, for anyone coming to the space to do, which is we tried to say, where is our comparative advantage? And where can we make the most contribution to the field? And, you know, so we're very self-aware that we're not, um, you know, we're not a philanthropy. We're not a, you know, um, a mission-driven investor that is just controlling our own capital, right? So we're a large financial services institution. And where we felt that we can make the biggest contribution to the field is um, by focusing on what are the skills that Morgan Stanley has, which is, you know, helping match – Capital you know with um, you know with sources of capital and uses of capital and then so that what we were really focused on for us is how do we really combine sustainability and impact and those goals um, with you know the the, the way that we focus on capital markets and on helping investors find the right investments. And so that's why, you know, we focused um, on one of the first major milestones for us was when we set up the investing with impact platform. You know, we, we very carefully, you know, did call it the investing with impact platform as opposed to the impact investing, you know, set of funds or, or one individual impact investing fund. Because we wanted to say, look, we, we can really help provide access to a whole range, everything from ETFs and mutual funds on through you know, very proprietary private equity fund to funds, deliberately aiming for impact um, and really provide that scale. And you know, I think that if you think about the journey of you know, 10 years ago, as you said, when we started Global Sustainable Finance, we were pretty much the only mainstream financial institution looking at that as part of mainstream business. Um, as opposed, yeah, you know, and and it, it, at the time it was, you know, less than one out of every ten dollars under professional management was focusing on sustainability or ESG. You know, fast forward to today, where it seems like everyone is getting into the field, and that, you know, it's more than one out of every four dollars. It's a very different situation. But back then, we were saying, look, we really believe that this, this, we can find ways to broaden this field so that it's not only. Um, ultra, ultra high net worth individuals or mission-related, um, you know, mission-driven institutions who can invest in this, that we can really make this something that can be much broader. And over the course of those 10 years, you know, I think what's been really fascinating is um, – Again, if you if you go if you were to go back, you know, 10 years, uh, the conversation about impact investing was predominantly about private equity investments um, that really only were accessible to a few, you know, very high net worth individuals or mission driven institutions. Um, we ended we we focused on, you know, how can we really sort of democratize this? And when we launched the Institute for Sustainable Investing in 2013, we set out what seemed like a crazy stretch goal of let's get to 10 billion dollars of uh, sustainable investing strategies um, within five years, and because at the time most people were talking about impact funds that were you know in the tens of millions, and so we were talking billions. Um, we've been really excited that over that time, yeah, you know, we actually at the five-year mark we had gotten not to 10 billion, but more than 25 billion dollars of um, assets under management in these various sustainability strategies. Um, but probably as important employee- important Important. We've helped sort of drive the field to the point where, you know, a number of years ago, we invest, uh, we launched our first impact portfolios, so that investors could choose not just one investment strategy and hope that they had chosen the right strategy, the right fund manager that was going to return well and have great impact but they could actually go into what most investors go into, which is a diversified portfolio that follows the recommendations of, an, of uh, you know, our global investment committee. And we were able to launch those, and the initial investment to be able to, in, to be in this diversified portfolio, which was, again, considered sort of relatively low at the time, was four hundred thousand and six hundred thousand dollars and dollars for the all equity and the balanced um, options. Um we've now been able to bring that down instead of six hundred thousand dollars or four hundred thousand dollars down to five thousand dollars through our online platform where an investor, you know whether it's someone starting their first job and just starting to invest or someone at you know any stage of the investing kind of journey um can with five thousand dollars, I can choose a diversified portfolio that thinks about sustainability, so for us, I think you know we we really feel like helping drive the sort of democratization of this where investors at all levels can really be thinking about sustainability alongside investing is one of the areas where, where we've been most uh, excited to be able to, to contribute.
0: know well, that's a, a quite a remarkable story for the last 10 years. And Doreen, I know Impact Investment Exchange has also been doing this uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, and I wonder how, you know, your your journey was shaped by the fact of being a woman leader and entrepreneur of color. And how did that shape your approach towards creating creating impact?
1: Right. And I think, Mukul, it's very interesting. Um, You know, when I was uh, back in New York um, this summer, this is something that I was asked a lot this time. So I don't know, maybe it's also the present climate in the U.S. Um, And it really is an important question because you also are hearing a lot of Um, talk around gender lens investing but gender lens investing is also very different when you're talking about uh, when you are a woman of color Um, and it's really a completely you know different way how um, people look at you and how they look at what you're doing you know as an entrepreneur I mean exactly 20 years ago I started my first company out in New York it was a global marketplace for handmade goods and it was so difficult for me to raise capital I mean I still remember I called up all these um, Silicon Valley uh, VC firms, and I basically called up and lied. You know, I basically said, hey, do you remember I met at a conference? And, you know, can I come over and uh, show you what I have? You said you were interested. Because they just won't even respond. And I got a whole bunch of meetings, but the minute I walked into the room, I knew, you know, I'll never get a cent from them. So I think it's been very interesting because while, you know, 20 years ago I did my first company and and you know, and did grow it and eventually did raise some money outside the US um, you know, and sold it, I think one of the things that stayed with me was the fact that it is very hard to go out there and as, an, as an entrepreneur and to be saying you're actually going to have a sustainable business which is doing good, but you'll make money for the investor. It is doubly hard when you're a woman, um, and it's triply hard when you're a woman of color. So it's very interesting. When I started IX 10 years ago, this was my second business, one of the things that I made a very, um, I would say, you know, a, a conscious decision was really to stay in the background. So where, you know, with, with OneNest, I was really upfront, going there, pitches, it's my company, I'm doing this, this, this. It was very interesting. With IX, I stepped back, and I basically said, and this is, again, I know I'm, this is going on you know, public you know, broadcast, but I have to say it because it tells you what it takes. Um, I actually had Caucasian men, Indian men, Chinese men who I had fronting me so that they would actually be talking to the investors. So immediately, um, a huge risk factor would go down because you know, if an Indian man is talking to an Indian investor all of a sudden, the risk factor goes on. If a Caucasian man is talking to an Asian investor, the risk factor goes down. And for me, all of a sudden, I think the biggest decision I made, and which turned out to be uh, a positive one in the long run, it was a very hard thing for me to do, but I realized it was not about me. It really isn't. It's not, not about me being the entrepreneur. It is about changing a system, and it's about bringing millions of people and women... Um, into a system which you know they 're barred from, so if that means I have to stay back and get them in front, I will do it and I think what was very interesting is we I would keep on talking about this whole you know, it takes a village it, you know we need to bring everyone in and we need to educate them and so we painfully did this and we painfully sort of you know created this sort of entire value chain of capital markets you know not that anyone paid us to do it we just did it you know and and we said we're going to just bring everyone in you know one door is going to shut in our face the other one you know will force open and and i think that's what frankly i feel why you know ix is so resilient as a company because we have so many stakeholders and well-wishers and I think the one of the greatest thing was after ten years, and again, it tells you at least one thing I've learned: I have patience. Is um, you know, in addition to all the things we have done, in you know, the Women's Livelihood Bond. Now we're going to a hundred million dollar that's going out in the market. You know, we have a, a, the largest equity crowdfunding platform now. You know, equity crowdfunding in the world for impact investing, etc. One of the most rewarding thing was when the Australian government came to us and um, basically um, gave us funding to replicate what we have done, which is really taking this whole gender lens investing to the next level by creating this ecosystem of bringing everyone in um, and being able to kind of show that, you know what, you know, it is okay. And these are the ways that risks come down when you invest in women and all this because we have all the data. So it's almost like now we can come out and tell people, guess what, you have been investing in all this, right? And, and you know, see that the impact you have been creating, and guess what? And there are all these women who may that you were having this return. So I think it's really wonderful to um, be be able to do that. But I think it really is remarkable that I had to, um, in some ways, sort of hide the fact that I'm a woman and a woman of color for the success of IAX. And... Um, and I think, again, I never said that openly, and now I do talk about it, um, and I think, and people get a little surprised and shocked that I'm, you know, but it is the reality. It's very hard, you know, to be, to be a woman and a woman of color, um, you know, as an entrepreneur. It's, it's extremely hard, and so I think we really need to do all we can to create an equal playing field.
0: You know, th- th- thank you, Doreen, for your candor, and it is a, I agree with you, it is a kind of shocking story, but... Uh, also, thank you for your resourcefulness and in, in, in the way you dealt with it. And just just to wrap up, Doreen, one, one last thing. Based on everything both of you have just said, how do you think we can create more pathways to, to connect the back streets uh, of uh, underserved communities to the wall streets of the world, especially for women of color?
1: So I think... Um, Thanks, Mukul. And again, a big thank you to Audrey, because really, you are doing remarkable work at Morgan Stanley. And not just Morgan Stanley, I think, you know, it's really admirable as you as a woman of colour, you have done incredible things, you know, with your career. And now you really are taking it to the next level, um, you know, with a fantastic, you know, financial institution. And I think, you know, if you are to connect the back street of the underserved community to the Wall Street, and as I keep on saying, getting that 99% in, I think, you know, we have started on the journey. We, we, you know, there are obviously, um, you know, banks that are coming in, financial institution, et cetera. But I think we must remain grounded, you know, in terms of giving a voice, you know, to the voiceless, in terms of, you know, empowering the communities and being able to actually take on the risk that goes with it, you know, and sort of embracing that risk as also a reward, um, a reward for a planet where all of us belong, and um, we have to sort of empower the investors as well to invest, you know, in things which are deeper impact and things that matter for the communities. Because I think if we don't, I think we will have, you know, a world that we won't be able to live in, uh, and it's just not the climate. You know, it's also the societies that are within these climates. And uh, and finally, I think. Um, we really need to bring everyone together. And I think we need that, you know, globally, and especially we need that as a society, you know, in the US where a lot of this uh, capital is there, we need to bring everyone together, um, from bankers to lawyers to philanthropists to investors, governments and businesses, to really create that inclusive capital markets. And and I have to say, just as a shout out to all the, you know, kind of the women of color out there, who are entrepreneurs, you know, you are part of the village, so just you can't give up because you know we. It really does take a village to create a sustainable world. So, so that's my sort of the last two cents.
2: You know, just um, you know, speaking, of, um, you know, Doreen about access to capital for. Um, you know, for entrepreneurs of color and for women, you know, it's absolutely something that, um, you know, that, that uh, we we're also really focused on. And, in fact, several years ago, um, Morgan Stanley actually founded the Multicultural Innovation Lab specifically to focus on the fact that we felt that there are you know, entrepreneurs of color or women entrepreneurs who aren't getting the same access to capital. And we've actually started this innovation lab where each year we um, we bring in incredibly exciting, promising entrepreneurs of color and women entrepreneurs um, and actually have them spend some time in residence with Morgan Stanley, get advice from Morgan Stanley experts and others in our network, um, and actually also make um, you know an, an investment in them. And uh, we've been, you know, really building that out each year. And, you know, recently there was a study that we did that really shows, um, you know, very much to a point that there is an enormous gap and a, and a missed opportunity um, you know, um, that uh, on the order of a trillion dollars of, of, of opportunities of exciting, promising entrepreneurial ideas to be investing in that are currently being overlooked. Um, so we think that that's an incredibly important area that, frankly, will end up benefiting all of us, right? Obviously the entrepreneurs and the companies themselves, but really all of us from the innovations and, and creativity that that, that that will lead to if we're able to, to give those the capital and the oxygen to, to grow and scale. Um, The other thing that I think is something that is really important and that is one of the sources of, uh, frankly, of optimism for me and that helps me remain optimistic about our our journey forward um, is really the, the input and excitement of the next generation. You know, for the past um, six or so years, we've actually had a partnership with Kellogg, where we launched the um, Sustainable Investing Challenge. And each year we put out a call to graduate students um, you know, around the world to submit their best ideas for a financial product that could be scalable, to, you know, ultimately grow up to be a real capital markets instrument that aims to be, um, you know, profitable. So, again, that could really tap the broadest um, possible pools of capital and that drives a really significant environmental or social impact and i have to say that each year we've just been incredibly astounded by not only the sort of depth and breadth of ideas but also the incredible rigor of these ideas that we've been getting from students from you know from all over the world um you know i think you know from you know uh, 60, 70, 80 different institutions from you know thirty different countries addressing challenges in all sorts of different countries around the world um, and when you see the level of excitement and of innovation and of both sort of financial rigor and impact rigor that the you know best and brightest of the next generation are bringing to this it 's really exciting and I think even more exciting of you know to to your question Michael, of how to sort of bring the backstreet and the Wall Street together is. That whenever we speak with the students who you know come together, because we end up taking the top ten teams and bringing them together, and actually having a, a live sort of bake off where they can present their ideas to investors and and uh, financial researchers and analysts, um, so often the, the response that we get when we say, "Wow, this is so exciting!" and why are you you know why were you interested in doing something that combined finance and impact in this way? So often they they sort of look at us almost as subtle and say, well, why would you not... Like, why would you not want to combine finance with impact? And how, why would you want to spend your time building a new product that doesn't have impact as an integral part of the formula? So, you know, I just think that that's something that's really exciting. you know, and and when you think about, um, as, you know, Doreen, as you mentioned in the beginning, the enormous transfer of, you know, trillions of dollars of wealth that we're going to see going to the next generation. The fact that this next generation is continually saying, you know, 86 or 90 percent that they want to integrate sustainability into their investment decisions, that they want, they expect to have sustainability options in their retirement plans that their employers offer them, that they are three times more likely to choose their employer based on sustainability, that they're twice as likely to choose products based on sustainability, um, and that they're also twice likely to boycott product companies or investment strategies that don't think about sustainability. You know, I think all of that is that is pretty exciting and is one of the things that gives me optimism. We just have future. to make sure, Audrey, that,
1: yeah, we have to make sure that the women of the next generation are investing as well, which, you know, sadly Absolutely. is not happening yet.
2: So I think we Yeah, I was that. really surprised by that statistic that you said. That's yeah. But I think I mean, we. we I have to do,
1: to. I, I do need to make a plug uh, for my alma mater. So I think, <laughs> you know, we have to make sure Morgan Stanley starts looking at working with Wharton on some of this because you know, Wharton is doing some incredible work. Absolutely. And, you know, and Mukul <laughs> and his colleagues on this space.
2: We've definitely so, had Wharton sorry, students Mukul, had to do it, the so. challenge as well.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, thanks again. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I'm very grateful to both of you, not just for your sharing your time and your ideas today, but also for what both of you are doing for the world. So thank you very much for that. Great.
1: Thanks, Mukul. Thanks, Audrey. Okay.
0: Thank you. Thank you
1: Bye-bye. so much.